unpleasant right now. <laughs> Jim's twirling knobs over there. <laughs> Thank you. So tonight, I'd like to talk about greed. And in particular, I'd like to talk about the problem with it. So this may seem at first thought a little bit like, well, yeah, I can see what the problem is with it. But maybe we really don't see very deeply into some of the reasons that it's problematic. And this is such a slippery topic because so much of our existence as human beings is dependent on getting things, acquiring things. They're things that we need in order to survive. So at a certain level, particular types of desires are very functional. They're necessary for our existence. They were actually involved with us even coming into being in the first place, assuming our parents were on friendly terms with each other. So let's talk about the Four Noble Truths first and how this fits. So with the second Noble Truth, of course the Buddha talked about there being a cause of suffering. And basically his view was that the primary source of our own discretionary suffering as human beings is located within our own mind streams. (coughs) in our proclivity, when the mind is untrained, to relate to reality in certain unskillful ways. To relate to reality with a lot of ignorance, a lot of not knowing, a a lack of clarity, a lack of understanding about what is really going on, how things really function. And these unskillful patterns of relating to reality, of course, are called kalesas. The big three being greed, hatred, and delusion. So the other night we had a talk about dosa, or hatred. And part of the teaching was one of the cause for the arising of dosa, or hatred, in in the mind was an unskillful, relationship with irritation. And that was the cause uh, for the arising of that particular torment of mind, that particular defilement. But the second of the two, two big ones, the two big hindrances in practice, greed, is the focus of the talk tonight And this greed is defined by Bhikkhu Bodhi as self-centered desire, the desire for pleasure and possessions, the urge to bolster the ego with power, status, and prestige. So he ties it very much back into the self-sense and into the reification of a particular self-sense. And there are a number of different Pali words that refer to greed in more specific ways. There's loba, meaning uh, desire for material objects and power. And that sounds the closest to what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi was talking about uh, with his summary definition. And there's tanha, which talks about uh, desire for possessions and desire for sensory satisfaction. And raga, meaning body-based satisfaction in particular. So just like dosa has a number of different aspects to it, so does this uh, thing that we call greed. And the Buddha, of course, says that the root of all of these defilements is avijja, or ignorance. And when he talks about ignorance, he really makes it clear it's not just about getting a few facts wrong. 
or missing a few points. It's actually an a, a whole active quality in the mind that actively gets it wrong, that has its own version of what's going on that we're operating out of, which unfortunately has major distortions in it. So it's both obscuring and is a kind of film or a kind of covering through which we view things and we don't see it clearly. We see something going on that isn't going on and we don't see what is actually happening with any kind of clarity. And an area where this ignorance is particularly thick or deep is in regard to sense pleasures. Um, This also ties into Vedana or feeling tone, pleasantness, as we'll see a little bit later. But we really don't have a strong understanding of how to understand self-pleasures, how to value them appropriately, and how to work with them. I remember a while back watching this old movie. I think Michael Douglas is the star in it. It's called Gordon Gecko. And it was set on Wall Street and it was all about what goes on on Wall Street and the, the drive for power, the drive for, for wealth. And it was kind of a, I guess, satirical comedy, you might call it, or a drama that had uh, some major social criticism built in. But the theme, the major character in the movie was had his, his theme, and his theme was greed is good. You know, greed is good. It's kind of what makes the world go around. You've got to get on board with greed. You have to find a way to make this tendency of the, the human mind work to your advantage. But the Buddha would say, uh, not so much on this. <laughs> He'd say, no, you know, not really. This is a suffering state, and it arises from ignorance, and it leads in the direction of further suffering. So it's not skillful, and following it is not uh, in our best interests. And of course, the Buddha's way, the Eightfold Path, is called the Middle Path, and it's the middle path between uh, the attempt to Uh, indulge in self-mortification that is unskillful in the interest of punishing this instinct towards pleasure and punishing the body and the mind for having their needs. And the other pole of it, which is indulgence in sense desires and sense pleasures with the idea that somehow that's going to be the big payoff, that's going to be the gateway and the doorway to getting what we really want and really need. And the Buddha was a a great student in this particular area. In fact, he would often describe his own enlightenment in terms of coming to understanding around sense desire and sense pleasure and figuring out what was going on there. So he would discuss that in terms of having come to clarification on the topic of gratification, danger, and escape in relationship to sense pleasure. Gratification, danger, and escape. So this is how he put it. So long, monks, as I did not directly know, as they really are, the gratification in the world is gratification. It's danger as danger, and the escape from the world is escape. For so long I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment. But when I directly knew all of this, then I claimed to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. The knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. So you can see that this is a real linchpin of his own understanding. 
So as a bit of background here, too, we have to acknowledge that when the Buddha said that he uh, thoroughly investigated the gratification and sense desires, we know that he did a very, very thorough job of this. So before he uh, left the palace, he had a life that was um, designed at the behest of his father to offer as much in the way of sense pleasure and gratification of the senses as possible. And this is part of his father's strategy to keep the Buddha from taking the direction of renunciation. So this is how he describes the earlier part of his life. Formerly, when I lived the household life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure, with forms cognizable by the eye, with sounds cognizable by the tongue, with odors cognizable by the nose, with flavors cognizable by the tongue, with tactile objects cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. I had three palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the winter, and one for the summer. I lived in the rain's palace of the four months of the rainy season, enjoying myself with the musicians, none male, and I did not go down to the lower palace. So the way I read this is, party so he tried it all so then his view at 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 a later point turns around and has a very different view of this he comes to regard this this kind of orientation this kind of way of being in a very different light So he says, on a later occasion, having understood as they really are the origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of the sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures, I removed the fever of sensual pleasures, and I dwelt without thirst, with a mind inwardly at peace. I see other people who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures being devoured by craving for sensual pleasures, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there's a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even divine bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior nor do I delight therein. So in the process of his own coming to understanding, in the process of his own development of his mind, he came to see it as something that was inferior, that was actually a lower form and less gratifying form of pleasure. And then that seemingly made it quite possible for him to basically lose interest in those particular kinds of pursuits. So we might say, well, what was going on there? What caused him to to have this big turnabout and change of view in regard to, to this? So how did he go from being immersed in sense pleasure to seeing them as limitations to happiness when attachment was present. So if we were going to say what that path was, obviously it has something to do with the fateful trip outside the palace where he left the seclusion of the palace, he left the environment being provided for him by his family and went out with limited accompaniment and saw for the first time an old person, a sick person, 
a person who had passed away, and a renunciate. So my own reading of this is that there's obviously a mythological element to the telling of this, meaning it's hard to imagine that somebody who was actually trained as a warrior and was being raised to succeed his father as uh, the defender of the clan didn't have any idea that death uh, and that kind of thing was uh, a possibility. But I think what's being said is it didn't register until one time it really did. When this uh, this <coughs> a seed of um, his bodhisattva nature really touched and clearly saw these particular conditions which are representations of the universal nature of suffering in conditioned reality. So it became very real and he saw it and he really saw it and it really registered. And his own description of what happened at this point I find very touching. And he talks about Suddenly, the vanity of youth entirely left me. Suddenly, the vanity of youth entirely left me. So he had a kind of existential awakening in the confrontation with the truth of the conditioned nature of things and the threat of suffering that is inborn and woven into that conditionality. And then at that point, his mind really turned towards uh, the mission of coming to understanding and securing awakening explicitly for the benefit of all beings. And he was talking about wanting to find a place, wanting to find a way, wanting to find an understanding where safety and refuge could be found reliably, where it could be reliably established. And he talks about his search and what he went through as part of this, and he said, O monks, I set out seeking the gratification in the world. Whatever gratification there is in the world that I have found, and I have seen with wisdom just how far the gratification in the world extends. I set out seeking the danger in the world, whatever danger there is in the world that I have found, and I have seen clearly with wisdom just how far the danger in the world extends. I set out seeking an escape from the world, meaning the cycle of samsaric suffering. Whatever escape there is from the world that I have found, I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the escape from the world extends. And so the question comes, what did he find out about sense pleasure? This kind of gratification. And he seems to have found out that in and of itself it's not a reliable guide or a reliable goal on the way to liberation. And if we actually take it to be so, we will move in the direction of more ensnarement in suffering and delusion. But of course, as I said previously, he started out in the same way that we start out. I said at the beginning of the talk, one of the things that's so slippery uh, about this particular topic is we need things, we want things, and there is a loose association at least between what we need and what we want and what's pleasant. So an example of this um, is we're born with a biological instinct to pursue what's pleasant, right? So when a baby is born, it's kind of a natural thing for the, the baby, for the child to kind of root around and look for the mother's a nipple or for a bottle. And for most women, nursing is a kind of pleasant thing. And 
So there's gratification in providing the, the nourishment that the child needs. And it works in its own terms. There's a kind of functionality to it. So pleasure is a guide to some of what we need to survive biologically. But there's a trick here, right? Because pleasure alone isn't a reliable soul measurement, even in instinctual matters. So consider, for instance, the consequences of always following without hesitation the pleasant taste of sugar. Right? It's pleasant. We kind of like it. We like pleasant taste and, and mouthfeel. But if we all know what happens if you, you really follow that. Or consider the consequences of uh, what it would be like if every time you saw you know, an attractive person walk pass you on the street, you followed your allure and you know, had some sort of um, you know, thing going on with them. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be good. You know? Kind of distract you from other things that had to be accomplished, right? So you can see that clear comprehension and the ability to say no to the automatic pursuit of the pleasant is essential if we're going to fun- function above this level of automaticity where there's a stimulus and there's a response, there's a pleasant stimulus, and then uh, we respond in a very uh, mechanistic way. And yet this general tendency to pursue what's pleasant is, is very strong with us. And if we take this as our primary marker, it's very distorting and leads us into a very seriously disadvantageous direction into more and more craving. And it's because we don't see the limitations, the inaccuracy, and the distortion that's built into this kind of process, which is another way of saying that we don't see the delusion. Our minds tend to go right from the experience of pleasant, that Vedana, pleasant, into craving and attachment to the object associated with the sensation. And it's really true that we as human beings have a very strong tendency to, per, to uh, proceed with the pursuit of pleasure, to use it as a kind of lodestar or the measure of thing, whether things are worthwhile and as a kind of compass uh, to follow. And we have to say, of course, that a lot of this is bound up in feeling tone. So if, if dosa is unwise attention to uh, the, the unpleasant vedana of irritation, then uh, loba is probably unwise attention to the pleasant vedana uh, as well. And the link between the experience of pleasant and the arising of craving and thirst for the object, the link there is the lack of mindfulness at the point of contact and seeing the Vedana. But there's also the ignorance and delusion which reacts to the feeling tone of pleasant in a very uh, deeply conditioned way by trying to hold on to it. So, making this point, the intellect can see what's being said, but it's equally true that unless we've really investigated, right at the point of of sense contact, really investigated, uh, right with the arising of Vedana, that we will fail to see the link in the progression to craving and holding and all the struggle that arises as that whole train wreck of follow-on mind states arise. But, you know, we have to be honest. You know, if we could figure out a way that we could make it be one 
pleasant thing after another, we would do it. <laughs> Wouldn't we? Okay, the honest ones say, uh-huh. <laughs> the aversive say, eh, there's nothing worth doing that with. It's not that pleasant. But we would. I can remember being on a, a retreat once and Ruth Dennison <laughs> came in and she was, a, she was a teacher and she told this story about being out in the desert and being on a, on a road and she saw this uh, RV driving by and behind the RV was a, a horse trailer and behind the horse trailer was another trailer that had dirt bikes on it. And at the very end, <laughs> there was like a barbecue. <laughs> and it's kind of like that, isn't there? Isn't it? It's like, well, let's go on vacation. We'll bring, you know, it's not just enough to be on vacation. We'll bring all our stuff with us, you know, our extra fun stuff. The big long trail of things that we, we think we need and would enjoy and would approve, improve upon our experience of being on retreat. Wow, that's really carrying a lot of stuff around. That, that's got to bring your gas mileage way down. <laughs> so, you know, on a deep level, we realize that this isn't possible to get it set up to be one pleasant thing after another and to keep it that way. But it doesn't mean we're not going to try. <laughs> So in the, in the interest of bringing uh, more consciousness to this particular point and in addressing this very strong tendency to try, I'd like to point out some problems with using pleasant as the sole marker. So these are the disadvantages of this approach trying to string it together one thing after another. First of all, we must consider impermanence. So as, as you may have noticed, pleasure wears out. So there's two different ways at least that this happens. First of all, there's a kind of habituation or pleasure fatigue that sets in, right? Okay, imagine you were getting a massage from somebody who is a really good masseuse. Okay, you're getting the massage. You're getting, uh, feels so good. Feels so good. Some of you may be, you know, booking that later tonight, but there's the thought of it. There's the experience of it, okay? Then there's the, the first 10 minutes. Then there's the, the next 10 minutes. Then it's 45 minutes. Then it's an hour. How do you think that would feel if that went on for like six hours? <laughs> Somebody says, yeah, great. Right? But there's a, there's a first experience of it, right? And then after a while, the system kind of goes, well, topped off on that one. Right? That's enough with that one. Right? And it, it goes from being pleasant to being eh, not so pleasant and then maybe neutral. And then after a certain point, it's like, get your hands off me. <laughs> Just leave me alone, okay? I want to go home now, okay? <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> so, you know, th- this is also the case with, with what you might call the second bottle of champagne. Right? There's the first bottle of champagne. Yeah? It's the first bottle of champagne. It's lovely. The interaction is lovely. The, it's so bubbly. It's so, you know, the hors d'oeuvres and it's lovely. Okay, after a while, then, you know, the hors d'oeuvres, the, yeah, they were good. They're, you're, like, getting kind of full. They're not, not so good. Yeah, they're still interesting. After a while, it's like, I'm full. Right? The same thing with the champagne. When you continue on, it, it turns into some, something that was originally pleasant. 
turns into something that's unpleasant in the, in the immediate and <laughs> it's really going to be unpleasant <laughs> the next morning. <laughs> so both the object of our desire and the pleasant sensations associated with it are impermanent. It's almost as if they're incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. <laughs> but when we're in a state of craving, we don't see that. Right? And the Tibetans talk about this, this as putting feathers on the object, which meaning, means overvaluing or overestimating what you can actually get out of something. Now another thing about seeing the pleasant um, as a, a real marker, the, the sole determinant of direction as a place where craving happens is the pleasant is a one-factor analysis, right? It, it has no peripheral, peripheral vision. The mind is just looking at that one thing. Is it pleasant? Mm, it's pleasant. Yeah, it's pleasant. It's pleasant. But what's wise or ethical isn't necessarily aligned with what's pleasant. Have you noticed that? So pleasant is a monofocus. It's a narrow consideration and it overvalues one thing, giving it a primary or exclusive importance. So another way of saying this is, you've heard that uh, common expression of being blinded by desire. And you know from your own experience or with the experience with, with friends, you know, when somebody has, is really in that state where they have a, a, a real Jones for something and they're like going for it, going for it, going for it, there's nothing you can say, right? You, there's nothing you can say to them that will... You, you can give them ten different really good reasons why that's a bad idea to be doing that thing, but when that is really strong... They are going to be doing it. (laughs) Or we're going to be doing it when we're really gripped by this. A lot of train wrecks happen in that kind of way. Another thing about this, another reason why this is uh, problematic, has to do with giving over power and choice basically disempowering yourself because you're being led, a, led around by this nose ring of pleasant. So when the craving and thirsting mind is involved with the pursuit of the pleasant, it's easily, we're easily led in the direction of addiction. And that, of course, brings with loss of further perspective and freedom And of course, craving feeds on itself, and craving is an unpleasant and painful state, and so the tendency is to go for the immediate relief of the pain and suffering of craving by seeking more of what we crave, right? And that's that's the path to addiction, isn't it? I can remember a a friend who told me once, he said, you know, the first time I ever tried cocaine, it was the most pleasant experience I had ever, I've ever had in my, my life before or since. And every time I tried it after that, it wasn't as good. So I kept on trying it. Right? That's what we do. I can remember one night uh, being at a casino in Reno at the craps table. So, anyway, so I'm at the craps table. I was given a Dharma talk. (laughs) So there I was. And and it was like, it was Friday night. You know? And what, what happens at gambling casinos on the weekends is, you know, people come in for the weekends. So people come in for the weekend, so like it starts getting really busy and the tables get crowded and people people are there and you know and you see you see certain people that they'll come in, you know, and they'll have like big stacks of chips and 
You know, they're not making, you know, dollar, <laughs> dollar bets or $5 bets, you know. They've got a big stack and, you know, they're, they're putting some here and they're putting some, they're making a lot of bets. It's really too complicated to understand exactly what they're doing. But, you know, they're pushing it out. So if, if they get a run of luck and, they, and they're winning, you, you know, the stacks of chips get bigger and bigger and bigger and pretty soon they've got like, you know, all these chips they're trying to carry around from table to table and they get more and more excited, more and more happy, more and more inflated. You can just see it. You can just see it happening. It's like, I'm the kind of person that wins at craps. <laughs> I've got the luck, right? There's something special about me. I know how to roll them, you know? I got the hot hands. I got the hot hands. And you can just see it, you know, like they're getting, they're visibly like ending. The self sense is getting enlarged. And it's really tragic when you see them like Sunday morning <laughs> and their stack of chips is that big and they're all dollar chips because the affect is completely different, completely different. Right? So it's a reversal of the inflation that happened when they were winning. So that's called chasing the bet. So then another disadvantage is considering what we do to get and keep the pleasant. In particular, what we need to to do to get and keep possessions. The pleasantness of ownership, of acquisition, of stacking up money and uh, things that we can own, tangible goods, as they would say. So, so the Buddha talks about this in the... Uh, Maha Dukkha Kanda Sutta. Maha Dukkha. Hmm. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting prefix there. Maha Dukkha. So he says, this is what we kind of have to go through in order to get, to acquire, to hold on. Well, there's the dangerous, difficult, painful effort to get it. And he was talking primarily in terms of people actually working at professions where you have to do things that could get you hurt. Then there's the failure after you've put all the work in to get it and the upset of failing. Consider all the, the people, for instance, who are entrepreneurs. You know what the failure rate of New, new entrepreneurial endeavors is, it's very, very high. Very high. If your mind was really bound up with the idea that you were going to gain wealth and make a success and you know, secure uh, all um, this uh, pleasant now and in the future for yourself through making those particular kinds of efforts, if they, you make all the efforts and it fails, that could be really pretty crushing. Then he says, when you need to protect and safeguard things. Okay, say you get a supply. You've got a bunch of stuff. You've got stuff at your house. Stuff. Well, now... It's kind of a, a problem. I had an experience where this winter I was gone from my house teaching and I came home and when I came home somebody had tried to break into my house. There's a broken window in the basement and it was a trip. It's like somebody's been here, you know, somebody's trying to take my stuff, my stuff. My stuff. <laughs> My stuff. <laughs> huh? 
But the, the more we have, the more we need to kind of worry about. You know, you got a car, you, where are you going to park it? You need a garage, you need a... And then there's the distress over the loss of it. Ooh. You ever had that experience? I had the, the experience where, recent, fairly recently, where I was, I was driving a, a car that I liked a lot, that I owned. It was nine years old, but that to me is new. It was nine years old. <laughs> and, you know, I had taken care of it. And all of a sudden, the engine, like, completely blew up. And it cost so much to fix it, it suddenly became worthless. And I, I didn't cry, but it, it, it was definitely like, oh, my car. And I went through this, this whole process of uh, grief and loss regarding my red Subaru station wagon. And, you know, was the dealer really telling me the truth? Was it really true it would cost $9,000 to fix it? Were they just trying to rip me off? You know, can I find somebody else to do it? Could I find somebody else to fix it? Would I ha- do I have to trade it in at the dealer? Could I trade it someplace else and get more for it? It was like, it was dukkha. It was dukkha. It, it, I, I was spinning with that for probably three weeks until I finally accepted. And, yeah. But we get attached to things, don't we? It kind of hurts when they go... You know you're in trouble when you start naming your car. <laughs> Never, don't name them. Okay, it's easier that way. So then, you know, when there are a lot of possessions, when there are things there, then then you've got the in-group fights over things. Like, have you ever been part of a family situation or heard of a family situation with a with a friend where? People don't trust each other or when there's one or more people who are really greedy or where there's strange things that happen around inheritances and money when somebody passes away. Right? Like, I mean, the fights can get remarkably petty about all this kind of stuff. It's like, who gets to have the picture, the original picture of the great-grandfather? Right? Or, you know, who gets the first uh, go-through in picking out what to get from, you know, grandma's jewelry box or that kind of stuff. Of course, another aspect of uh, unskillful things that can be uh, inspired by craving for material goods is war. I mean, we tend to think of war as being about hatred. And certainly there's a big expression of hatred and cruelty uh, as part of war. That's how it plays out. But really, when you look at the genesis of many wars, it's really about greed, isn't it? It's a struggle over things like territory, resources, economic advantages, strategic advantages, who gets to be the dominant culture. Right? And you could put into war, you could put into that, uh, additionally into that, you could put colonialism. What's that? You know, whole groups coming in and kind of like, hi, we're here now, we own it. Yeah? Another version of this. There is, of course, uh, crime to get things and the punishment that can come from that. Think, for instance, about the drug wars. There's the one in our country, but think about, for instance, what's going on in Mexico and in some of the Central American countries related to the craving for drugs, much of it driven by consumption in North America and the market that is here for the consumption of this. Whole communities, whole, whole uh, provinces and countries have been very negatively impacted 
by the craving for these particular mind-altering substances in the market that exists here. Drug wars, even here in the United States, where various gangs struggle with each other over turf, who has the right to sell in particular neighborhoods. The corruption of uh, law enforcement, the lack of safety in neighborhoods and streets because people are uh, running around with guns, shooting things up. And then, of course, part of this pursuit of the pleasant and and the expression of craving has to do with unethical behavior and the karma that, that comes from that. The way we can find ourselves doing things that we uh, actually don't approve of, that we, we recognize are unskillful, either while we're doing them or in retrospect, we have the experience of, oh my God, what was I thinking? You know, what, why did I do that? I can't believe that I, that I did that, that I took that, that I interfered with that relationship between two people, that I, right, that I, you know, didn't fulfill my family obligations because I wanted to do this because I felt it was more uh, immediately gratifying and pleasant. Right? So you can see, this, this, uh, this can get us way, way off track. And of course, there are many social implications of, of greed on the larger scale. So if you look at our, our own culture here in North America, and um, we've got a very high level of insatiability. It, it, it's like we can't get enough. Sometimes this is referred to as being the, the disease of affluenza. You know, having a certain level of affluence and uh, having the disease of wanting more. And then the commodification of all, all kinds of things. You, know, you can see it really easily. Like, you know, the commodification of uh, um, really young teenage girls to sell products, the... Um, economic collapse that we nearly uh, sustained uh, in a way that put us under a few years ago where there was just an unbridled uh, pursuit of short-term massive profits with everybody in on it because nobody wanted to blow the whistle because so many uh, levels of society and so many people were benefiting from it directly or indirectly. And of course this, this kind of greed, when that's present there as a, a social norm, means that there's no consideration of the fair distribution of wealth that's actually necessary for there to be any kind of social stability. There's not a, a, a grounding kind of concern about things like, well, are all the, do all the children have food? You know, do all the children have health care? Do all the children, are all the children getting education? You know, are, do all the old people have enough, uh, enough to eat? Are people who are out of work uh, able to survive? Do they have a way to get back into the labor force and take care of themselves and their families? So another vulnerability with this, of course, is our vulnerability as individuals to manipulation. So do you know that there's a a whole field now called neuromarketing? Have you heard about that? It's basically the, the use of things like uh, brainwave uh, technology and uh, various forms of behavioral psychology to be able to figure out through very close research into uh, how you can get people hooked, how to market things to you in a way that makes it really difficult for you to resist the hook. So there are a lot of people 
uh, looking at this and trying to figure out ways to do things. You know, and you can you can see some of this going on already with all the pop-up ads <laughs> on your computer, right? You go to certain websites looking for certain products or, you know, maybe you go to Dharma websites and you see, you know, you're checking out certain Dharma things and then all of a sudden you're on some other site and you're getting pop-ups for Zafus, <laughs> right? The information is, is being collected in the, in the interest of selling you things. So you can see so, some of the social implications of this. You know, just, just like a, a person can wind up staying at a kind of robotic or mechanical level of functioning if uh, they easily uh, move from the pleasant into craving and then follow the craving, so can entire cultures. So I, I would say that it's quite true that our whole cultural enterprise is having a turn towards acquisition and hoarding as its uh, point. And you see this with, for instance, the you know many of the graduates of top colleges now flock to investment banking and, and those kinds of professions, right? We need minds who can do things like figure out how to work with water, figure out what to do about nuclear waste disposal. But we don't so much pay for that. But that's not to say that pleasant is all bad. Because it's not really about pleasant being bad. In fact, the Buddha is really clear about this, that despite the dangers and the dysfunction that can be present there with pleasant that goes into uh, greed, that goes into craving, there isn't a problem with all desire. In fact, some desires are actually very wholesome desires depending on what other factors arise in the mind. So, for instance, the desire for liberation is very wholesome. The desire to cultivate kindness is very wholesome. And it's also incorrect to say that Buddhism is against pleasure or is puritanical. I think this is really uh, a misunderstanding. Yes, it's true if you're a monastic, there's a real letting go of, of sense pleasures. But it, it's a different uh, kind of commitment, a different kind of life, uh, a different kind of life direction than uh, need be the case for lay people. In moderation, sense pleasures are fine when they're in balance and when the mind is is basically wholesome in relationship to them. So it's not as if we as lay people need to live as monastic people or push away pleasant. We can actually get into a misunderstanding about that and think that there's something wrong with pleasant. And in fact, in practice, certain kinds of pleasant are actually onward leading. So, for instance, concentration states, the practice of jhana, you need to be able to open to pleasant, to allow pleasant, to surrender to pleasant, to enter those states of wholesome concentration. So you have to actually allow it to practice entering into it So we want to be mindful about pleasant. That's the key thing. And in fact, we see that in practice, the second foundation of mindfulness is attention to Vedana, attention to this whole uh, mental quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. 
which is a way of saying you have to have to notice it, you have to wake up to it, to be present with it, to allow it when it's there, to know it and open open to it is the way. And by bringing awareness to Vedana, we can awaken. We know we don't have to push it away. We know when it's present. And appreciating its impermanence, we can open to it with balance. And when you think about it, if we're in mindful relationship to what is pleasant, without craving, we actually experience the most that it can offer. And there is gratification in in sense pleasure. And the thing about pleasant is it can be, well, pleasant. (laughs) It's pleasant. We don't have to have an aversion to it out of fear of craving. You know, sometimes we can take it in that way. Oh, it's pleasant. I'm I'm afraid of pleasant. It leads in a bad direction. I've got to back off from it. No. No need to back off from it. And in fact, fully knowing when pleasant sensations there is important because if we aren't aware, that's when we're easily carried off into states of greed, clinging, thirsting, loba, the various forms. And then if that happens, our mind can get kind of in a monofocus, trying to hold on to it, trying to keep it. And that's when things get sticky. Craving arises and there's not a, a center to our, uh, our presence. There's not an understanding. And we get a kind of tunnel vision. And then that's an interesting situation, isn't it? Because we go from a situation where there's pleasant to a situation where craving arise, arises, where there's stickiness there. We're in opposition to what's actually happening because now we're clawing, we're trying to keep it, we're trying to do something with it, we're trying to make it more, we're gripping, we're afraid of losing it. And it's gone from being what was actually pleasant at the beginning into something that is unpleasant. You ever notice that? Have you noticed that in your practice? What happens when you can just be there with the pleasant and open to it? Especially when it's wholesome pleasant? And when, how it changes when there's the arising of something pleasant and the mind goes, I'm going to get it, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make it like it was the last sitting. I'm going to, how did I do that? And then it turns into a struggle. The freedom of mind has been lost. So you start to notice, while pleasant is pleasant, craving is not pleasant. Craving is not a pleasant state. That's why some of the, the words that are, that are used to express the pain of this are things like thirsting. That doesn't sound like fun. Thirsting, clinging, burning, <laughs> these kinds of sticking... So the thought of the object might be pleasant, but that burning desire to get it, that's not so much fun. And if you've ever had the experience with unrequited love or lust, I think you know what I'm talking about. Like the fantasy of it? Pleasant. That... I gotta get it, I gotta get it, I gotta get it, I gotta keep it, it would be so good if I could have it. (laughs) I want it. I used to have it, I gotta get it back. Oh, that's really dukkha. So if craving is a form of suffering, and it leads to further suffering when it's acted on, then the question is, how can this craving be addressed? How do, we, how do we work with it? So there's basically two strategies. The first is by seeing it with mindfulness. 
and letting go of the craving and the actions flowing from it. And the second is by addressing the ignorance which, or avijja which gives rise to it. So in letting go of the craving, some of the main strategies are things like renunciation, this whole turning of the mind towards the cultivation of, of compassion, uh, metta, wisdom, and letting go of sense desires as the, the big orienting principle of the mind. Generosity, that's an obvious corrective, right? Training the mind to hear, let go. Here, have this. May I give you this? May I offer you this? No, you take it. Mindfulness, of course. Insight practice where the mind learns to open in the same way to the three different Vedanas. Equally willing to be present and to acknowledge any of them. Unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. Willing to practice with all of them. Practicing with all of them. Recognizing what's there and saying, okay, open, okay, open. Knowing craving uh, when it arises as a hindrance. So sense desire and ill will are the, the first two, right? The biggies. They're usually thought of as being the, the two big ones of the hindrances to concentration. So it involves knowing it, naming it, feeling it, being willing to apply mindfulness towards the experience of it. And then the second main strategy has to do with addressing the avijja or addressing the ignorance that that causes this. And that has to do with things like the exercise that we just went through, which is reflecting on the limitations of sense desires and the limitations of using pleasantness as a sole marker uh, for what should be done, what we should seek. And, of course, the cultivation of wisdom through the following of the Eightfold Path. So this involves a letting go of binary, seeing through the the false binary of pleasant is good and unpleasant and neutral are either bad or uh, not worthy of um, being open to. So I'll just leave you with a a final image when I was putting this uh, talk together. I had this image arise in the mind of a boat. And developing this capacity to cut across the grain of pleasure and pain. This current of pleasure and pain rather than being pushed and shoved by. So imagine the difference between a boat that's just out there being pushed by the current However the current is running, in this particular case, the current of pleasant. However the current is running, and wherever it goes, that's where the boat goes. There's no steering, there's no capacity to set a different course. Whatever happens to be arising, whatever happens to be known, that's just where it's going. If it goes into the rocks, if it goes into the swamp, if it goes... uh, uh, way downstream in directions, uh, unknown and undesirable. That's If that's the way the current is running, that's the way the boat goes. Or there can be an alternative image, <clears throat> which is a boat that has a rudder, a boat that has a center board, a boat where there's a capacity to actually set the direction to determine where the course will be held, where the course will be set. And that's the difference between a trained and an untrained mind. 
one that can set a course across currents, with the current, against the current, whatever is required in order to be skillful, whatever is skillful and supportive of uh, the development of the heart and mind and the direction of freedom. So enjoy your pleasant when it's pleasant. And get the most pleasant out of it by seeing it's pleasant. And nothing more than that. May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and of of benefit to all beings everywhere without exception. May we relinquish the mind of clinging and craving and find the great freedom of heart promised by the Buddha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.